0: Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 28. As usual, we're going to start with the proverb of the day. Uh, when I was covering this message, I was praying and I was asking the Lord, What is it, Lord? What proverb can you show me that really exemplifies the life of Paul? Because Paul, we're going to see uh, today, we're going to see that this is the last chapter in Acts chapter 28. So I just kind of wanted something to wrap up Paul's life and it's one verse so i'll just read it to you it's proverbs 16:3 and it says commit your works to the lord and your thoughts will be established commit your works to the lord and your works and your thoughts will be established we know that the apostle paul committed his works to the lord we know that everything he did had the lord jesus christ as his primary focus and his thoughts were established his thoughts were established as far as what he wrote on paper, how he dealt with people. Uh, he just lived a, just a great example of the Christian life. And we have been blessed as Christians, and Christians have been blessed for 2,000 years because of the life and the writings of Paul. But even in our own life, there's a, different, a little different uh, interpretation in, in one of the other Bibles. It says, commit your works to the Lord and your plans will succeed or you'll be successful. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, if you want to be rich, you just kind of follow this and it's a formula to get rich. But what type of successful are we talking about? We're talking about spiritual successful, not worldly successful. If we commit everything that we do, everything that embodies us to the Lord, our thoughts will uh, will be successful and our plans will be successful. So the last time we saw the Apostle Paul's voyage to Rome temporarily derailed, and today we're going to finish the book of Acts with Paul finally making it to Rome, starting with verse 1 in chapter 28. Now when they had escaped, they then found out that the island was called Malta, and the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer whom, though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. But he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. So our fearless crew survives the shipwreck, and they're floating to what was then known as Melita, which we now know as as Malta, which means refuge. And it was a small island about 60 miles south of Sicily. In verse 3, we see that Paul is doing his share. He's getting some wood for the fire, and apparently he arouses this snake, who's probably in a a, a latency, like a sleepy state, and then the heat warms him up and he gets energized and he fastens himself onto Paul and bites him. Viper, or viperidae, which is a family of a, a wide variety of poisonous snakes. So the natives knew. They were natives to that island. They knew that if this snake bites you, Just sit back and watch. He's either going to swell up, his throat is going to close, he's going to fall down dead, depending on which type of snake he was and which type of of venom came out. So they knew that this was going to happen. In verse 4, we see that the native superstitions now start to come out because of this. Well, they figure he was shipwrecked. And we did talk about this. We talked about the local superstitions. And if you were shipwrecked or there was a storm at sea and you were on it and you were killed at sea, it meant that the gods were angry at you. Well, he escaped the gods in their mind, and he ended up on this island. But now the viper attaches to his hand, and now this guy's going to die. So Paul must be bad because the sea didn't get him, but now the viper's going to get him. It's possible that they thought that the local goddess of retribution, which they coincidentally named Justice, that was their local goddess, and the Greek counterpart named as nemesis probably caught up with him. And we see superstitions today, don't we? You can type in superstition on the computer and it says that if you walk under a ladder, it's bad luck. Or if you open an umbrella in your house, it's bad luck. Or if you have a black cat that crosses your path, it's bad luck. You know, my wife and I, we have five indoor cats and two outdoor cats. And maybe that's been my problem all this time. I don't know. (laughs) But superstitions. How about in Christianity? You know, Jesus had to address a superstition. The people at the time would pray over and over and over like a mantra or a chant to God. And Jesus says, don't do that. You think that if you continue to repeat yourself that God is going to hear you for those repetitive prayers? He said the pagans do that. That's not the way we, we, we speak to our Father in heaven. Other, other uh, superstitions that are out there, I know, coincidentally, as I was uh, covering this, I read an article in... It's the Wall Street Journal online. It says, when it takes a miracle to sell your house. This is interesting. You can go online and get a home sale kit if you can't, you know, figure out how to sell your house and it's just not selling. There's a home sale kit that is priced around $5, and it includes a little statue of St. Joseph, instructions, and a little prayer. And it teaches you how to, you know, go to your front lawn and Bury them upside down. And the whole deal, for five bucks, as a matter of fact, they have a phone number in case you're interested. It's 888 bury joe (laughs) I'm not kidding. I'm not making this stuff up. But there are just so many superstitions about how we talk to God, how we get things from God. But it's right here in God's Word, you see. It's right here in God's Word. Often those superstitions, though, have a way of a pretense of a relationship with God without putting in the time, the effort, and the heart. What do I have to do to get by? That's a a question that a lot of people, if they don't outright say it, they're thinking, what do I got to do to get by? I just want to kind of get my way into heaven. I don't want to be a holy roller. I don't want to be a pastor. I just want to squeak in. I really don't like the hot weather. I don't want to go to hell. I just want to get myself in there. And that's the question that people ask. But see, Jesus taught us Relationships. He taught us and he loved us enough to try to break those superstitions and teach us how to love God as our father and how to receive the love from our father to us. A two-way relationship, right? And that's a new concept with many. And not to knock Islam, but if you talk to a Muslim and you ask them, they'll tell you, we don't consider God our father. Our God is a capricious God. He's whimsical. When we die, then we know if Allah is pleased or not with us. They don't have that relationship here. And again, by their own lips. Polytheism, Hinduism, millions of gods. Same thing, there's a lot of confusion. They don't have that that one-on-one relationship because there's just so many of them, and they they each have a a purview. They each have control over a different aspect of your life. It gets confusing. And even where I came from, I came from an established religion. And I felt as a young person that God was always mad at me, that he was always had his finger over me, ready to squash me like a bug. You know what I'm saying? So I didn't have that relationship either growing up. And that's a new concept to, an, to a lot of people. So there's superstitions and there's ways that people try to kind of get by. And then there's actually relationship, which is what Jesus taught us. In verse five, we see that Paul survives the bite with no after effects. Uh, Paul certainly would have done well in any of the current survivor series. <laughs> I'm sure he shook off the snake into the fire, they barbecued it and said it tastes just like chicken. <laughs> and in verse 6, we saw that Paul survived the bite so the natives changed their minds about him. They did an about-face and said he's a murderer, he's a bad man. They did an about-face when they said there's nothing wrong with him. He's surviving it. He must be a god. You see how they quickly they changed their minds? So Paul was a murderer and deserved death to a turn of events and now he's a god. He went from a zero (laughs) to a hero. But you know, in the world, you can go back to a zero again. The world is fickle. And then you can go up to a hero again. And it gets very confusing what people think about you, especially if you're a a high-profile figure. But this represents the fickleness of the world. There's no stability or foundation in the unspiritual. Look at sports figures. They're loved when they do great. The crowds cheer for them. And then when they don't do great, they're booed and hissed. When I was a little boy, my uncle took me to a Yankees game, and uh, he kind of ruined it for me for any other baseball games because I was going to have fun. And I just remember sitting next to him in the bleachers, and he was booing this one. I still remember Willie Montanez in the Yankees. He said, he's a bum. He's yelling at him and stuff. You're a bum. And I was like, as a kid, I was, I was you know, afraid. I was thinking, people were going to come after us. But if Willie Montanez would have hit 10 home runs that day, I guarantee my uncle would have done a complete about about face. And that just shows you the fickleness of the world, right? And it's even if you think about it, it's even happened to all of us. The opinions of you and you and me are cyclical. Sometimes they love you, sometimes they hate you. So you almost have to get to the point where you, you just kind of shrug it off. It doesn't matter. And what I'm getting to is we need to please God. And not to cultivate a paranoia, but... If you realize at this very moment, somebody somewhere is talking bad about you or they're thinking something bad about you, does that make you feel paranoid? Maybe some thoughts come to your mind, especially if you're a boss, if you're a manager, if you're a leader, if you're a politician, forget about it. They're all talking about you, right? So you're not going to please everyone. So we need to be concerned with pleasing and serving the Lord. Otherwise, we become unstable. And that was the way Paul was. It didn't matter what the islanders thought of him. He just continued full force serving the Lord. And that's how he lived his life. I guess I get a little frustrated when I see Christian pundits on the news make scriptural statements to the media. And then they recant because of public outcry. Oh, you shouldn't have said that. Well, I'm just reading what it says from the Scripture. And then they they go back on the news and they apologize for offending people. Well, if it's in the Scripture, it's in the Scripture. Don't apologize for what God's Word says. A man or woman of God must remain unmovable when it comes to the knowable things of God. Of course, there are some that speculate about what God thinks and, and different areas that are not particularly covered in Scripture, and those I wouldn't get dogmatic on. But the knowable thing of God, the knowable things of God, the man and woman of God must be uh, immovable about. And furthermore, even if your adversaries don't agree with you, they will respect you, and it may open the door later for a witnessing opportunity. Um, Marty's dad, uh, I had a great time with Marty's dad. Uh, for many years, he would torment me and try to you know, make fun of the, of the faith, and I just would take it, and years would go by. And eventually, he came to the Lord through another pastor, and he uh, spoke to me afterwards and he said, you know, you always held your ground. He goes, you never, you never wavered. And that had an effect on him. It wasn't me that led me to the Lord, but it was the fact that I was immo- immovable, no matter what he threw at me, you know, and I just took it because he was senior to me and I respect uh, older people, but he was, he just was a blessing. Verse seven. Now in that region, there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island or the magistrate whose name was Publius who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. Paul went into him and prayed, and he laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. They also honored us in many ways, and when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. So Publius' father had dysentery. Uh, the Greek word is dysenteria, which is a, is a composite word, and it literally means grievous bowels. And this particular uh, affliction was from a variety of diseases that caused diarrhea and bloody stools. Not to be gross, but you have to understand what this guy was going through. Dehydration, pain, being confined to the house or wherever he was confined to. Uh, you know, lack of nutrition, over time it would cause mental anguish because it was such a, depending on which bacteria you got, it could have been brutal. And today we know, it. actually if you Google it, it's known as malta fever. It's caused by the brucella genus microbe in goat's milk, which in those days would have been very common in that farming community, okay, and before the age of pasteurization. But Paul, what's really more important about this, within three years of an untimely death, the Apostle Paul was still others-focused, He was not self-absorbed. It said that whoever came to him, he healed, just like Jesus. Jesus was tired. Jesus lived his whole life others focused. Whoever came to Jesus, I don't remember one portion of Scripture where Jesus turned somebody who was sick away. And this is the same situation with Paul. He wasn't brooding about his life. He wasn't brooding about the captivity. All he was doing was focusing on other people. There was a question asked of my pastor, and the question was, What is the retirement plan for pastors? And his answer was, does a pastor, if he's able, ever cease to teach and to give the word of God? That was a good question. But what about Christians? What about those of you who aren't pastors? Do we ever stop striving to be like Jesus? Sort of like Paul, okay? Do we ever stop striving to be like Jesus? Do we ever stop striving to be like salt? Remember, you hear that expression, you need to be salt and light to the world, salt and light. Salt is a preserving influence. What does the Bible say about salt? What does Jesus say about salt when salt loses its preserving ability? In a physical sense, it says it's good for nothing except to be thrown out of the house and to be trampled underfoot by men. That's in a physical sense. But if Jesus always spoke using the physical, the parables, okay, cast alongside to make a spiritual point, what good are we, Christians, if we lose our saltiness? What good are we if our example stinks? What good are we if we just kind of blend in with the world but have a label of Christianity? We're no good. We're good to be thrown out of the house and to be trampled underfoot by men. Okay? It doesn't mean that everybody has to be a missionary or everybody has to be a pastor, but it does mean that, you know, where is our example? Where is our desire to be more like Jesus and to be striving to be like Jesus? That's the question. Verse eleven. And after three months we sailed and in, 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 An Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers, which had wintered at the island. And all that means is, Luke is giving some details here. The twin brothers were uh, Zeus's son, Castor and Pollux, his twin sons. And if you ever look at those old movies, you see the big wooden ships on the the stern of the ship and, and the prow of the ship back in the front. Uh, they had the carvings, the wooden carvings of their gods, and that was supposed to give them safe passage. So um, Dr. Luke is, is giving a, a detailed He was very detailed in his works, uh, which had wintered at the island. Verse 12, And landing at Syracuse we stayed three days. Now, he's not talking about central New York. Um, this was a prominent city of Sicily at the time, which predated New York by almost 2,000 years or more. Go Sicily. <laughs> Sicily is not mentioned anymore in the Bible, so I had to do that, sorry. Verse 13, from there we circled round and reached Regium, and after one day the south wind blew, and the next day we came to Puteoli, where we found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days, and so we went toward Rome. And from there, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as the Appy Forum and the Three Inns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. So Regium is just modern-day Reggio, which is, um, you know, if you go south in Italy where the boot is, you know, if you're looking at it from aerial view, the tip of the boot is, is modern-day Reggio. Uh, Puccioli was uh, the west coast of Italy. Now we're going north. The, then you had the Appi Forum and the three taverns and then ultimately Rome. And we know that they traveled along the Appian Way, uh, which was one of the Roman roads that were constructed from, uh, from Rome going south. Okay, so a little historical note there. And in verse 15, when Paul saw them, the brethren, he thanked God and took courage. The question is why? Because the brethren refreshed Paul. (laughs) That's the reason. Paul had a long, hard road in his life, and it wasn't over yet. And it was very encouraging to meet with like-minded people who supported Paul and loved Paul. And that's a true purpose of fellowship, to encourage one another. Unfortunately, Christians who are who maybe have their own agenda or they have no common goal or they don't know what it means to to meld in with the body of Christ and, and have that team spirit. They spend much of their time scrutinizing others and having a critical spirit, tearing down instead of building up. Now, that's an aberration in the body of Christ. But unfortunately, where there's not a common goal, that's very common. It's probably more common in Western societies, certainly than still Middle Eastern societies. And when we went into the Gospel of Luke, we talked about the Middle Eastern culture. Hospitality is big back then. They would, you know, you see some of the things that Jesus says about if you stay somewhere, stay there until you pretty much wore out your welcome. And we don't understand that. But in those days, it was an honor to have guests come in and they would wash your feet and they would anoint your head with oil. So hospitality back then was big. And we lose some of that in the Western culture with all our hustle and bustle and all the things that we have to do that that clog up our days. So these people were refreshing Paul. True fellowship is encouraging the person, maybe who had a procedure this week. If you know somebody who's been into the hospital during hospitality, take them aside, maybe pray with them, ask them how they're doing. True hospitality is the widow who just lost her husband. Take the woman aside and say, you know, can I just stay with you um, this afternoon and sit with you? Like Job's friends in the beginning where they were just quiet and they, you know, maybe held his hands and comforted him just to have that relationship going. True hospitality is the, the couple who's older and maybe established well financially, and they see another couple in the fellowship who's not doing well financially. Hey, how about we take you guys out to dinner? See, this is this is what we're talking about. This is encouragement, this is what the body of Christ is supposed to do. I could just imagine Paul he goes to see these believers. He's hot, he's tired, he has no place to lay his head. Okay, and he goes there and they say, oh, Paul, Paul, come stay with us seven days. Take a load off. Let me take your sandals off. Let me anoint your head. You know, my wife just baked fresh bread. Let let me get it out of the oven for you here. Have a piece of bread. I could just picture Paul turning to God and saying, oh, Lord, thank God I ran into these people. That's refreshment. That's what Christians are supposed to do to each other. Right. Okay, common goal there. Verse 16. Now, when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard. But Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together, he said to them, men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who, when they had examined me, wanted to let me go because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have called for you and to see you and speak with you, because for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. And they said to him, We neither receive letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken any evil of you. But we desire to hear from you what you think, for concerning this sect we know that it is spoken against everywhere. So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified to the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. So what we see is Paul meets with the Jewish leadership in Rome to set the record straight regarding his reputation. Now, this brings up a good question. Should you ever defend yourself? You know, and some Christians will say, you should never defend yourself. God will always defend you. Well, let's see what Paul did. In a nutshell, Paul was not ashamed of what they knew about what he had done and what he had said, so long as the facts were correct. Remember, he was being painted as an anti-Semite. Paul was the perfect Jewish boy. He grew up in a Jewish home. He had Jewish parents. He studied under the greatest Jewish teachers. He went to the best Jewish schools Studied, You know what I'm saying? So, you know, Paul had to correct the facts. But once the facts were corrected, then he let it stand. So what about us? I think that it's, it's you know, similar to Paul. We correct the facts. And if people still don't like you, then so be it. We, don't sh- we shouldn't try to correct the facts to make ourselves look better. Now, Paul was trying to say to them, listen. Again, I'm not an anti-Semite. Let me, and he's done this before. He explained his upbringing. He explained, explained his uh, parents. He explained where he studied, right? And he says, look, all I want to do is explain to my Jewish brothers and sisters about the hope of Israel. Hey, guys, check this out. This is what we've always been taught. Hey, let me open the scripture to you. Look, this, look, at, look at what it says in Isaiah. Look at what it says in Psalm 16, Psalm 22. And he would go through all the scriptures to explain to them, this is the hope of Israel. That Messiah, especially the time-sensitive ones, that time has come and gone, and Jesus fulfilled those. And furthermore, he rose from the dead like he said he would. So he, he made a good case here. The hope of Israel. In verse 23, Paul, Paul persuaded the people from morning till evening. Now, this is another of Paul's marathon sermons. We saw that uh, in Troas, Paul also um, went from morning till evening and Eutychus kind of fell asleep and he fell out of the window. And remember that story? And Paul had to kind of bring him back to life. So um, it was a pretty long sermon. So don't complain if I go over a few minutes today. Verse 24. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. And there you have it. Some bought it, and some didn't. So is the case with mankind. And see, we need to know that in the beginning. We need to know that up front. Uh, Matthew 28, Jesus says to go into all the world and make disciples of the nations. That's a command. But some won't receive. But that's not your concern. God calls us to do our part, and he does his part. He draws people unto himself. It's our part to preach the gospel. Uh, So that's kind of good. It kind of gives us balance where we don't take it personally. If somebody doesn't come to the Lord, if we say, well, you know, I've been witnessing for three years and I I don't know anybody who's asked me to say the sinner's prayer. That's not our concern. There's some times that I've been able to close the deal, so to speak, because 10 people before me have been sharing and that person's just eager. And I could say, get carried away and say, boy, I'm good. It wasn't me at all. It just was that person was ripe. Or the person that you talked to last uh, week Or last year or the year before, three years later, somebody else will lead them to the Lord. So we see that. Some listened and some didn't. And it's been that way since the beginning of mankind. Verse 25. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the heart of this people has grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their heart and turn, so that I should heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God uh, has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. So in the beginning of the book of Acts, it starts out with the account of Jesus' resurrection and ascension. That's pretty much where it starts. And in the end of the book of Acts, it ends with the apostle Paul continuing to preach until the ends of the earth. How appropriate. But I really want to focus before we close on verses uh, 26 and 27, which directly come out of Isaiah Uh, 6, 9 through 10. And I'm just going to turn to Isaiah 6. This is a fascinating portion of of Scripture. Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, King Uzziah was a very popular king. He reigned for 52 years. There was prosperity in the land. There was military might. The economy was good. Everything was going well. But then King Uzziah died, and the people were broken. They were brokenhearted because you could get a crummy king next, and he could ruin the whole country. OK, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. So the earthly king dies. Everybody's focused on him. But Uzziah said, in that year, I saw the true king, the real king, the the everlasting king sitting on the throne, high and lifted up. And use your imagination a little bit here. Okay, this is the Lord high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. The temple was a tremendous uh, structure back then. Um, Probably, you know, probably about the size of this room, maybe bigger. Uh, depending on the, the measurements. So the train of the Lord's robe is filling the temple. Above it stood seraphim, which were uh, angels. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, you've got to imagine this, because it's shaking the posts of the temple. And that thing was built really well with marble and solid stone and timbers. A- and the angel says once to the other, he says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, The whole earth is full of his glory. Could you imagine being Isaiah and seeing this? He probably had like nervousness, you know, and trembling inside. I would have. I would have been crying or something. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Then I said, Isaiah is saying, woe is me, for I am undone. That's basically saying, I'm toast. I, I, I can't stand in God's presence. When you're introduced to the living God, you see how sinful you are. We all, we all do. Okay? So Isaiah realizes he doesn't even belong here. He doesn't even belong in God's presence. Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Remember, it starts out with King Uzziah, but now he says, my eyes have seen the king. All the other kings now don't compare to the Lord. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand the live coal, which he had taken from the tongues of the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged or atoned for. And I also heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Here am I. Send me again. You're confronted with the living God and all you want to do is help. Lord, what can I do? What can I do to be a part of your plan? And he said, go and tell these people. And this is now where it comes into the book of Acts. This is what Paul is referring back to. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant. The houses are without a man. The land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And then he speaks about the remnant. Here's a situation where, in context, Isaiah 6, this is right before the Babylonians are going to come. And they're going to destroy Jerusalem. They're going to burn the walls. They're going to knock everything out. They're going to steal the gold. They're going to kill the people, uh, slaughter. All this stuff is coming. So in context, you understand what's going on. But the heart of the people is really bad, very wicked, very backsliding, very turned away from the Lord. Isaiah starts out with the death of a popular king, then he reveals the true king, and it ends with the people who are more man-focused than God-focused, and that's really sad. See, that's the tragedy of God's people, that they're not terribly moved by God. Let me just explain the phrase here. It says that you're seeing but not perceiving. Does that make any sense? Go to this people and say, hearing you will hear and not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. What does that mean? Many, many years ago when I wanted to be a police officer, I used to take these tests, right? They had these written tests and one of them was the McCann test. I still remember it like 19, 20 years ago. And they would give you a a sketch, a scene of a bank robbery, right? And you'd have to memorize it for 10 minutes. That's a long time. Then they would take it away from you and put a bunch of questions. How many bank robbers were there? How many tellers? What were the names of the tellers? How many money bags were on the counter? Which way was the getaway car facing? When I took that first test, I was like, I'm not cut out for this job. But I just looked at it for 10 minutes. My eyes saw. I mean, I could still see the picture in my mind, but when I went to write down everything that was in the picture, I did terribly, because I didn't perceive what I was seeing. Now, the hearing part. If you are married and uh, your spouse... You know, you're having regular conversations. What are you all laughing for? (laughs) I didn't even say anything yet. And you're just having regular conversations in the morning, and, you know, your spouse says to you two, maybe three times, I'm going to go to the bank, I'm going to go to the supermarket, I'm going to go to pick up this from whatever. And then by the time your spouse leaves the house, as they're walking out the door, say, baby, where are you going? You know? And it doesn't mean that we're bad spouses, but we're hearing it, right? It's not sticking anywhere, or it's sticking somewhere, and you just can't recall it. So you can see in a more humorous note how you can hear but not take it in and you can see but not perceive it, right? Now, this is even more sad because the people willfully were guilty of tuning out God. They saw the miracles. Israel was a land filled with miracles. Their whole history was filled with miracles. Somebody somewhere saw some type of miracle somewhere, okay? They saw the rocks that Joshua had put on there, you know, the, the monuments to God. They saw uh, the, the, the reading of the law. They heard the law, right? The miracles, the law, and they willfully tuned God out. And what I'm getting to is, that's kind of the state of the world today, isn't it? But check it out. The scripture is not talking about the world. Isaiah and Paul, in strict context, Isaiah is speaking about the children of Israel, and Paul is applying it to the people at his time. Now let's get a little closer to home. It's even more tragic when this can be applied to the church today, because we're not above any of this stuff. We we don't get to slide because there's grace. We don't get to ignore God because Jesus died for our sins. The church today is so intoxicated by worldliness, just, just like the Sardis church, they've left their first love. Jesus said to Sardis, you have a name that you are alive, but you're dead. What a shame. There's just a a dysfunctional label. We're in a live church, but you're dead inside. There's nothing in there. Where are we when it comes to this? Now, I want to exclude those of you who don't know the Lord. This isn't for you. Or those of you who are new believers. That leaves the rest of us who've been believers for some time. The question, Christian, and to myself is, how has God changed you through the life-changing book of Acts? We've been through 28 chapters of this book, of the book of Acts. I would ask myself the same question. What have I learned? How has God spoken to me? And honestly, if we can't answer that question, that's really sad. That means we're just as guilty as these people. We're tuning them out. There's so much in here. There's there's leadership. There's love. There's relationship with God. There's abandonment. There's hurt feelings. There's forgiveness. There's repentance. I, I could go on. 20, 30, 40 subjects in this book that we've been through for over a year. So my question is, how has God changed my life and your life through the book of Acts? And that's a question that we really should have an answer to. Because if we don't, then we need to go home after the potluck and grieve and repent and say, Lord, what did I miss the last year, the year and a half? But the good news is, no matter how many times God's word has been rejected by his people, he still sends his preachers like Isaiah and Paul. He's still loving. Isaiah says, how long do I have to do this? I mean, I want to help, but... I'd like to see fruit, too. And God said, until the, there's no man in the house and the places are wasted. And, but the good news, Isaiah, is there's going to be a remnant because there always is. Are we a part of that remnant? And God allows you, God allows you to turn. So when we close this and we say goodbye to Paul's life for a sense and for a time, um, we need to ask ourselves, how has the Lord shown us how our lives can be changed by his word? Let's pray.